Father God, we come and ask for your help this morning, that we might see you, know you, love you, rejoice in you, as John prayed, through your risen Son. Lord, speak to us through your word. Help us to see Christ, to understand what you would have us understand, to change us, to soften our hearts individually, to shape us as a congregation, to grow us in unity and love through your word. Help us to do so. Give us divine aid to understand these divine words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, without preaching, Christ's death and resurrection would be meaningless to us. That is, you and I wouldn't understand, wouldn't believe, and wouldn't know Christ if Christ was not preached. Preached by himself, preached by his apostles, preached by the early church, preached by the reformers, and preached by men like Nathan down through the ages. It's the preaching of Christ that makes him known to us. It's the preaching, the proclamation of Christ that makes sense of who he was and what he did. The cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ would have no effect if it happened in a dark cave with no witnesses. But in God's wisdom, that's not what happened. God made Christ a public figure He made his death a public spectacle and his resurrection a public event. Then he sent his apostles into the world to tell us, this is what that means. And the church continues to this day to proclaim the risen Christ and tell us what it means for our lives, what response it requires from us, and what effect he has on our life together as a church. During the Reformation, Luther said, the resurrection of our Savior Christ in the preaching of the gospel raises earthquakes in the world now, as when Christ arose out of the sepulcher bodily. To this day, the world is moved and great tumults arise when we preach and confess the righteousness and holiness of Christ, and that through it only are we justified and saved. But such earthquakes and tumults are wholesome for us, yea, comfortable, pleasant, and delightful to such as live in God's fear and are true Christians, more to be desired than peace, rest, and quietness with an evil conscience through sinning against God. What Luther's describing is what Peter's doing here in his sermon at Pentecost. He's causing the earth to quake. He's causing a seismic shift to happen in Jerusalem. God has acted, and he's telling the people what that means and what they should do. God has acted, and now Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving authoritative interpretation of it. He's preaching. God's raised Jesus from the dead, and then 50 days later, he sends his spirit in a visible and audible way. The people of Jerusalem hear this and see this, and ask, what does this mean? Look in verse 12 of chapter 2. What does this mean? Well, then Peter tells them. 
he interprets with apostolic authority, he interprets what this means. His sermon has three points with one application at the end. He quotes three Old Testament texts and then calls them to repent and be baptized. His three Old Testament texts are Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. Last week, we saw Peter start to answer the question, what does this mean? What's going on with this rushing wind and fire and speaking in tongues? And Peter responds and says, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Joel promised on the day of the Lord. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has begun this outpouring of the Spirit and the fulfillment of all the new covenant prophecies and promises. How does he know that's the case? Then he moves to his second citation and cites Psalm 16 that we read earlier this morning. He quotes from Psalm 16 to show that it's the resurrected Messiah who would pour out this spirit. And Lord willing, next week, we'll look at his quoting of Psalm 110 and see that the, the risen Messiah is now the reigning Messiah who will make his enemies his footstool. But today, we're looking at that second point. And the second point, I think, is the center of his sermon. The resurrection, Peter's saying, is central to redemptive history, and it's central to the Christian life. The resurrection is central to redemptive history, and the resurrection is central to the Christian life. First, the resurrection is central to redemptive history. By this, I mean that Peter's placing the resurrection on a timeline of all God's works in the world, and he's actually placing it as the high point of the timeline of history. It's the climax. It's the event that all the Old Testament was building up towards, and all the New Testament runs downhill from, like a snowball gathering momentum and size as it moves down a bank. Peter's not divorcing the resurrection from everything that comes before and after it. Instead, he's actually holding it up as the cornerstone that holds together everything that comes before and after. If you look at verses 30 through 33 with me, look at verses 30 through 33, you'll find that in David's explanation of his use of Psalm 16, a string of redemptive historical events that all center on the resurrection. In verse 30, God swears an oath about the resurrection. In 31, David foresees and speaks about the resurrection. In 32, God resurrects Jesus. And in 33, the resurrected Jesus is exalted, receives, and then pours out the Holy Spirit. Peter's picking up pieces of God's history of redemption, a history that runs from eternity past to eternity future. It's a history that begins before creation with the Father, Son, and Spirit willing to create, save, and live forever with image bearers. From before time began, God had in mind everything that would take place, everything that's recorded in Scripture. He had it all in mind, and it all centered on Christ, the Son who takes on flesh to redeem a fallen people. From before the beginning, the way that God planned to glorify Himself was through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. God always intended to save people through the Son. 
Now, this salvation was made necessary by the fall. Shortly after creation, man rejects God. Man rebels against his creator and plunges himself into death, which is the promised result of rebellion. But right away, God promises redemption. Right away, God promises victory over death. He promises salvation through his son in a very faint but true way in Genesis 3.15. It's a promise that's clarified in Scripture as history moves forward. It's this fallen world into which you and I are born. We're born into death. We're born needing salvation that comes through Christ and through Christ alone. As descendants from the first man and woman, we're born sinners. We live as sinners and we enjoy our sinful rebellion. God has no intention of accepting you back apart from Jesus. He has no intention of accepting you based on your own good behavior, your very best efforts, or your best attempts at obedience. From the beginning, God intended to accept you in this one way, in Christ alone. By turning from sin and clinging by faith to the Savior that God always meant to provide, the Savior that Peter's preaching here, who was crucified to pay for sins, who overcame death, and now offers you and I eternal life. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's through Christ alone that you stand right now accepted by God. If you aren't a Christian, if you've never trusted in Christ, or if you've wandered from the faith that was taught to you when you were young, know that it's through Christ alone that God is offering you salvation this morning. And it's that salvation that the story of the Bible teaches us. It's a long history. It's a complicated history. It's certainly one that goes beyond the scope of any one sermon. And so just like we don't have the time to cover the whole thing in detail this morning, Peter back in Acts 2 chooses just a few key moments to highlight. The first piece of the history that Peter picks up is God's promise to David, the king of Israel in 2 Samuel 7. Look down at verse 30 in Acts 2. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that is to David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Actually, God's promise to David was more than just a son for a time. God tells David in 2 Samuel 7, your throne shall be established forever. Now, there are two ways that this could happen. Uh, Wellam and Gentry help and point this out to us. Uh, one way this could happen is that God establishes his throne forever. One way is that every single one of David's sons would produce another son forever. And that strategy has always gone well, hasn't it? Nations are regularly troubled by this problem of who gets to be king after dad dies. England, Israel, you name the country with a monarchy, and this problem comes up. So the only other solution that God gives David is that a son, one of his sons, will live forever. So in this promise to David, God is promising a son 
who will live forever. He's promising the resurrected Christ. Now, David, knowing this, prophesies in Psalm 16, not about himself, but about Jesus, a physical descendant of his. Look at verse 31. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. As John helped explain earlier, Peter's teaching us that this psalm, like many other psalms, could not have been about David, could not have been merely about David. Although it was written by David, although it's in the first person, so he says, I saw the Lord, he is at my right hand, you have made known to me the paths of life. Although it's written in the first person, Peter's saying that it's really and truly, literally about Christ. David may have been writing about a situation that was true of himself, but he was knowingly writing about a situation that was more true of Christ. When Peter writes that God will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, I think he was certainly hoping and trusting that God would deliver him from his immediate enemies. It was like saying that he had many close calls with death, but he knew that God would save him from them. But he also knew that eventually he would die. But in a more literal and a more true sense, God fulfilled these words through Christ. Christ actually did die. And he was literally not abandoned to Hades, to the realm of the dead. God didn't allow his body to see corruption. This psalm is more truly about Jesus than about David. And Peter proves that by telling people in Jerusalem that this psalm couldn't have been about David. Why? Because his body not only saw corruption, but his bones are right over there in the tomb that you can go look at for yourself. Jesus is alive, and he will be for eternity. This psalm is about the crucified and risen Jesus. So Peter's teaching the Jews in Jerusalem, and he's teaching us today how to read our Bibles. He's teaching us to read it as all about Jesus, all about the crucified and resurrected Jesus. The whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, with God as its author, is about the suffering dying, and resurrected Messiah. We find him in that promise of the snake crusher in Genesis 3.15. We find him in the ark, even as the ark, in the flood later in Genesis. We find him in the good as dead Joseph, thrown into a pit, who saves Israel. We find him throughout the Psalms. We find him as wisdom itself in the Proverbs, and as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. There are certainly wrong ways to insert Christ into the Old Testament. There are wrong ways. But brothers and sisters, if you have the Spirit, you can read your Bible yourselves in this way. God has made you alive. He's opened your eyes. And the same Spirit that inspired the Scriptures now dwells in you. Ask the Spirit to help you read and understand the Bible. Ask the Spirit to help you see Christ in all the Scriptures. Ask others in this church. Ask your pastors. 
Ask people in your life group. Ask them, am I reading this right? Ask them if this connection goes a little too far. Ask them, I'm reading this story and I don't really have any idea what it has to do with the gospel of Jesus. Can you read it with me and help me see it? God's given us all his spirit. But remember that he hasn't given him to you alone. Not just Peter, but Jesus too teaches that the whole Bible should be read in this way. He says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And later in that same chapter, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Reading the Bible this way isn't just a neat trick. And it's not something reserved for scholars or speculators to prove how smart they are. It's for you and for me. It's for our good, it's for our faith, and for our hearts. It displays God's glory and wisdom, showing how He's orchestrated all of human history to center on the one person and work of Christ, His beloved Son, who's worthy of all God's love and all our devotion. It also gives us a second testament that's teaching us about our Redeemer. If we don't find Christ in the Old Testament, we're limiting ourselves to a fraction of what God's given the church for our benefit. The Old Testament teaches us about our Redeemer. It shows us how much greater He is at leading than the judges who were in Israel. It shows us the depth of our sin that He saved us from in the law. And it shows us His heart in the Psalms. As I was just telling the students the other week, do you want to better know Christ's love for you? Do you want to have more, a more rich understanding of his love for his people? Read the Psalms. Look just at Psalm 16.3 that John pointed out. This Psalm that Peter tells us is about Jesus. A few verses before the party quotes, says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Whose delight? Jesus' delight. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, delights in you, saint. He delights in rotten sinners like you and like me, undeserving sinners, sinners who he's given his life for and who he gives life to and makes new. It's this Jesus who delights in his people. It's this Jesus that God raised from the dead. Peter preaches in Acts 2.32. After thousands of years of waiting, the Redeemer has come. How do we know this? The resurrection. And this spirit you're seeing and hearing now at Pentecost, this is the spirit of God promised that he would pour out in the last days. How do we know this? The resurrection. 
And Peter's saying that he and the other apostles are witnesses. And many in the crowd themselves, no doubt, saw Jesus after his resurrection too. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 15. Many saw him. As Nathan helped us see earlier in Acts, this resurrection isn't doubtful, nor is it something that we have to try ourselves to prove. What Peter's doing in this sermon isn't trying to prove the resurrection. Peter's goal here isn't to try and prove that the resurrection happened. What he's doing is interpreting, teaching what the resurrection means. And that's still our job today as witnesses to the resurrection. Our job isn't to try and prove to people that the resurrection happened. Our job as individuals and as a church is to tell people what that means. And what that means is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. What that means is that Jesus is God's Savior who died to forgive sins. What that means is that he now lives forever, and as we'll see next week, Lord willing, he rules as Lord forever. What that means is that we aren't called to prove to people that the resurrection happened, but we're to proclaim that it has happened, and people need to repent and trust in him, as we'll see Peter do in the weeks to come. What the resurrection means is that the resurrected Savior, who lives forever, has received the Holy Spirit. Jesus has received the Holy Spirit, and he now pours him out so that we too might have life in him. Look at verse 33. Peter says, now that Jesus is resurrected, he's received the Spirit. Now that Jesus has been raised in a special way, different from his incarnation, his miraculous incarnation and birth, Different from his baptism, when he receives the Spirit, you can look to Mark 1 for that, when it descends on him like a dove. In a different way, he's received the Holy Spirit and has poured him out in a miraculous way at Pentecost. So it's not that Jesus was ever without the Spirit. As God's eternal Son, he dwelt with the Spirit eternally, Father, Son, and Spirit, mutually indwelling one another in this bond of love, even as a man, he always had the Spirit from his incarnation to his birth until his death and evermore in life. But now at his resurrection, he's fulfilled the work that was given to him and earned eternal life. Having fulfilled his work that he was called to do in his humiliation, in his whole earthly life, his suffering, his death, having fulfilled that. He's earned eternal life. So he's earned the Spirit as the Messiah, as the mediator between God and man, in this way. Having earned eternal life, he can now pour out the Spirit and give life to his people. It's like Jesus has now come of age and has earned access to the bank account that he's always had and even used himself in his life but he can now give freely from it. And freely give, he does. Titus 3 tells us that he pours his spirit out, not just on the apostles, but on all Christians, and does so richly. 
And that leads us to our second point this morning, that the resurrection is central to the Christian life. The resurrection is central to the Christian life. It's central to a redemptive history, and it's central to your life today. This chain of events of redemptive history, from God's promise to Old Testament prophecy to Jesus' death and resurrection to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this historical chain of events presses into our lives because of the resurrection. It's because our Savior now lives and has earned eternal life that He can pour out His Spirit on us and grant us life as well. By pouring out the Spirit, Christ raises us to life with Him and in Him. By pouring out the Spirit, He unites us spiritually to Himself and in His resurrected life. Paul shares this emphasis of Peter on the centrality of the resurrection. Paul and Peter agree that the resurrection is central not only to God's grand plan of salvation, but also central to you, to your salvation today. Keeping your finger in Acts 2, turn to Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians. In the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul's describing salvation as being sealed with the Spirit and raised from death to life in Christ. He begins chapter 2 of Ephesians by describing us just like David in the tomb, dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Salvation from that death, then, looks like being raised to life in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases, a phrase you'll see throughout the book of Ephesians, in Christ. Look a little before chapter 2, in chapter 1, verse 20, after saying, with power he has raised Christ, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God has raised Christ up, seated him in the heavenly places. And jump down to chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul talks about your salvation, Christian, as being raised up, currently, now, raised up with Christ. Is that how you tend to think of your Christian life? Is that how you tend to think of your Christian life day to day? If you're thinking about your salvation is limited to the cross, where your sins were paid for, where forgiveness is purchased, an incredibly important link in that chain of redemptive history. But if the way you think day to day about your salvation is limited to the forgiveness of sins, if it's limited to the cross, you're limiting the gospel. The gospel and your salvation includes the forgiveness of sins and being raised to life, to new life with Christ. It includes being made a new creation, being made spiritual men and women, who walk by the Spirit. And this Christ-like life 
is a life of joyful communion with God. Look back at the psalm that Peter quotes, some of the verses that John highlighted for us. What kind of life did Christ have on earth? What kind of life does he now have forever in glory? His heart is glad. His tongue rejoices. His flesh dwells in hope. He's full of gladness with God's presence. Literally, it's God's face. His face is before him. He wants to see him. He wants to be in his intimate presence. And if you're in Christ, your life too ought to be marked by gladness, by unshakable joy. Grow that joy and cultivate that gladness of heart by spending time in the presence of God. Do so alone with your Bibles. Do so in prayer. Meditate on the truths of Scripture. Pray them back to God. Plead with Him for joy in Him. Friends, meditating on this joyful communion that we're called to have with God was deeply convicting to me this week. Do I have any joy in Christ? Any love for Him in my own heart? A poem of John Newton's that I often think about, one stanza says, let me love thee more and more if I love at all I pray. If I have not loved before, help me to begin today. I'm so distracted by worldly things, both good and bad. I'm so in need of the Spirit to give me joy in Christ. Alone I, Cal, am dead and dull. I need Christ to give me joy through the trials and successes each day brings. So you too, plead with Him for joy in Christ. Pray to Him for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And spend time in the presence of God, not only alone, but with fellow believers by gathering on Sunday mornings to worship Him, by coming back on Sunday nights to pray together, by meeting during the week to encourage and even admonish one another. Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. The union we have with Christ in His resurrection also includes union with others who have been raised with Him. Union with Christ is not an isolated, isolating thing. It includes union with others in the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and if He's been raised to life, so has His body. So is His hand and His foot and His leg and His liver. If you're in Christ, if you're a member of His body, you've been raised with the head, and you'll be raised with the rest of the body. And it's this corporate resurrection, it's this weekly gathering, this community life that is our great witness to Christ's resurrection today. Our witness to the resurrection is our supernatural unity and love for one another produced by the Spirit. The apostles had a sound of rushing wind and fire. The apostles had miraculous tongues. They had signs and wonders that kick-started the church and affirmed their message. What signs do we have? What witness to the resurrection of Christ do we have? Clever proofs? 
convincing theories. We have His Spirit. We have the church, a church that proclaims the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ, our head. And we have the lives of the members that display a supernatural, spiritual unity around that truth. The great miraculous sign that God's given today for the world to see and believe is the church. Ephesians 3.10 says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's through the local church. It's local church. It's people, groups of people with this one thing in common. You've been raised to life in Christ. What's the primary thing that you and I and all of us here at Millwood have in common? We've been raised to life in Christ. You love Him. You gather to worship Him. You forgive one another. You count one another more significant than yourselves. You live like you're going to live for eternity. You live like here and now isn't all that matters. You confess, as we sang earlier this morning, that this life is just a vapor. Knowing that this life isn't all that matters, you don't have to worry about missing out on glory or rest or pleasure here and now. Instead, we know that we can give ourselves, we can spend ourselves for one another. We can be thought of as less than others. We can even suffer for others. What compels us to covenant together in a rather radical way? Why have we committed in our covenant to give sacrificially of our time when we gather? Why have we committed to give sacrificially from our income? to give ourselves to prayer for one another, to bear burdens, to rejoice with Ryan and Allison, or maybe marriage for you seems really far off, to spend time with someone else's child, to read the Word with them. Why do any of this? Why love one another in a way that costs us more than it benefits us? Because we've been loved in Christ in a way that cost us nothing because the Spirit of God has been poured out on us, because the Spirit is working in us a love for one another. And that Spirit calls us to bear witness to that grace that we've received by loving one another in ways that cost us. Why did people help the Tangs move yesterday? Why do so many of you visit the Courtney's? Are you hoping that, well, I'm pretty sure one day the Tangs will help me move too. Are you hoping that the Courtney's are going to help you out in some way? No. We do so because we've been made alive in Christ. And you've been given the promise of eternal life in Him too. The promise of a future resurrection in Christ spurs us on to sacrificial living today. The promise of resurrection in Christ spurs us on to sacrificial living today. The hope, the certain hope of eternal life means that I can willingly suffer in this life and not worry about missing out on rest or pleasure or joy. Instead, we can rest in Christ and be assured that eternal rest, eternal life, and eternal joy awaits us.
the spirit of the resurrected Christ produces unity. And he does so through the preaching of Christ. What does Peter in this Pentecost sermon keep telling the crowd to do? Listen. Hear these words. Let these words be known to you. So with Peter, let's commit to hear and proclaim the word of Christ. Together we proclaim with our lives and preach with our mouths about our resurrected Lord. We gather each week to hear preaching because we love to hear about our hope, our head, our Christ. We gather to hear preaching to grow in Him. And we gather to hear preaching to grow tighter together as we gaze together with greater and greater clarity on the face of our resurrected and living Lord. As the apostles committed to that, Luther committed to it, and he calls us to do the same. Luther writes, The Holy Ghost began his office and his work openly on Pentecost, for he gave to the apostles and disciples of Christ a true and certain comfort in their hearts and a secure and joyful courage, insomuch that they regarded not whether the world and all the devil were merry or sad, friends or enemies, angry or pleased. They went in all security up and down the streets of the city. So went the loving apostles on, in all courage, without seeking leave or license. They asked not whether they should preach or no, or whether the priests and people would allow it. Oh no, they went on boldly. They opened their mouths freely and reproved all the people, rulers and subjects, as murderers, wicked wretches, and traitors who had slain the prince of life. And this spirit, so needful and necessary at that time for the apostles and disciples, is now needful for us. The Pentecost sermons of the Holy Ghost are very needful for us, that thereby we may be comforted and with boldness condemn and slight such blaspheming that the Holy Ghost may put boldness and courage into our hearts, that we may stoutly thrust ourselves forward. Let who will be offended, and let who will reproach us. Such a courage there must be that cares for nothing, but boldly and freely acknowledges and preaches Christ, who of wicked hands was crucified and slain. The preached gospel is offensive in all places of the world, rejected and condemned. If the gospel did not offend and anger citizens or countrymen, prince or bishop, then it would be a fine and acceptable preaching and might well be tolerated and people would willingly hear and receive it. But seeing it is a kind of preaching which makes people angry, especially the great and powerful and deep learned ones of the world, great courage is necessary and the Holy Ghost to those that intend to preach it. It was indeed undaunted courage in the poor fishers, the apostles, to stand up and preach so that the whole council at Jerusalem were offended to bring upon themselves the wrath of the, go the whole government, spiritual and temporal, yea, of the Roman emperor himself. Truly this could not have been done without the Holy Ghost. T'was a great wonder that the high priest and Pontius Pilate did not cause these preachers that hour to be put to death, what they said smacking so much of rebellion against the spiritual and temporal government. Yet both high priest and Pilate were struck with fear 
to the end that God might show his power in the apostles' weakness. In weakness, let's go on preaching Christ in the strength and courage and comfort of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father God, once again we confess our weakness, our fear of man, our sinful lack of confidence in you and your word. Help us by faith, by your spirit, to take courage and simply to preach. Help us to draw nearer to Christ. Help us to draw nearer to one another in love. Lord, these things are impossible apart from you. So we plead for your help, for your strength, for your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.